A number of years ago, a little kitten was born. Actually, a few of them, but two in particular. Unwanted, unloved. And these kittens, as they grew up, they learned a few things. They learned uh, they at least play with each other. And they learned that humans were good for two things, to abuse them and to feed them. And uh, as they grew up without love, they one day were taken on a trip out way out to the middle of nowhere and dropped off in the woods, all alone, two little kittens. One of them, Little Marble, was a runt of the litter. She was about probably a quarter the size of her big brother, a tomcat. And as they got out in the woods, well, he decided that he was big enough to go and hunt for himself and he could fend for himself and he would be just fine. And there she was all alone in the woods by herself. Well, she was, as I said, the runt of the litter, very clumsy, had no coordination at all whatsoever, and there was no way she could catch a thing. And she was starving. So she went to the only place she knew she could find food, the home of humans. But yet at the same time, all she could think about was the abuse that she had received by humans. And so she sat about five feet outside the door and began to meow. And when nothing came to that door, she started meowing around to all the windows and all the doors, all the way around the house until the humans inside heard what was going on and came out to investigate. Little Marble was terrified of humans, but yet at the same time, she was so hungry, she just, she wanted to eat, and she wanted food, but she was terrified to get more than five feet close to any human being. And so she would just sit there, five feet away, looking expectantly, purring, and meowing for food. The poor thing was nothing but a little sack of bones, basically, covered in fleas. So between every meow is another stop to itch and scratch, and, and then back to the waiting for food. Well, of course, this was my house that she ended up at. And uh, the interesting thing is, if you follow the life of that Tom... That tomcat was a very big cat, became a very big, beautiful uh, tomcat, orange tabby, and uh, became the terror of the neighborhood. He hated all human beings, hated all other animals and all other creatures, and did absolutely everything in his power to make sure that everything in the neighborhood was miserable, including every person's cat and dog. Marble, on the other hand, I put this dish out of food and a dish of water, and uh, I sat down next to it. Well, that was a problem, <laughs> because now the dish of food was three inches from me, and she didn't want to be more than five feet from me. But eventually, hunger won out, and so she managed to creep her way up to the other side of the dish opposite of where I was sitting. 
And she began to eat. And she'd drink. And she'd eat. And she'd drink. And she was just starving. And then I put my hand on her food dish. Well, she went back to five feet away. That was just way too close. There's absolutely no way that she was going to get near my finger while she was eating. I mean, after all, humans are abusive, right? But who is me? I was, I am, a cat lover. I've raised over 30 cats in my life. I love cats. And all I wanted to do was to let Little Marble know that I loved her. I wanted her to experience that love herself. I wanted her to be able to trust me. But I knew it was going to take time. And so I sat several hours out there as finally she got used to my hand being on the food dish and then my finger touching her nose while she ate. Ooh, that was a big scare. That went, she went more than five feet that time. Uh, and it was quite a long time before she had the, the courage to even come close to that food dish again. I mean, a human actually touched her. But you know, within a couple hours, I was finally able to pick her up for the very first time and put flea medication on her immediately because she was crawling. (laughs) And you know, as the weeks went by, as the months went by, as the years have gone by, if you come to our house, you will be greeted by Marble. First thing she does is jump on the hood of my car and climb up the windshield and meow at me. She's my little shadow, and her favorite place to be is five feet away from me. That's never changed. She loves me. She knows I love her. She knows I feed her. She knows I take care of her. She knows I'll protect her. But if I try to pick her up, no. She's not going to have it. Unless she knows that I'm going to carry her to the shed to feed her, that's the only reason she'll let me pick her up. And if it's not for that reason, she's gone. If I try to put her on my lap, I have to pin her down to my lap and hold this struggling, writhing creature until I let go and she's gone like a streak of lightning. She never, I mean, she's like, what, how old is she now? Seven years old? Has never learned to experience love. But you know, I think people are a little like that sometimes. You know, as people, we have been abused. All of us have. Because we have a devil who's out there to make sure that every single one of us experiences it in some way or form. Whether it be emotional or physical or spiritual or whatever it is, all of us have been abused. And he knows that if he can do that to us, he can make sure that we think of God as our abuser. That is, that becomes our picture of God. Marble's picture of me, even though in theory she knows I love her, in theory she knows I take care of her, her picture of me is still an abusive human. And it always will be till the day she dies. Because she will never accept the fact that she can fully trust. But what about us? Have we accepted the fact that we can fully trust God? Have we accepted the fact that he really does love us, besides the fact we know in theory that he loves us, right? 
I'll continue more with that in a minute. A couple weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me a little phrase, just a little quote, you might say. And uh, I'm going to write it here for you. I found it very interesting. It says, the secret to loving is living loved. The secret to loving is living loved. And the next sentence goes, this is the first forgotten step in relationships. Think about that for a minute. The secret to loving is living loved. So if we want to be loving Christians, are we living loved? Or are we like marble, living scared? So I have a friend. Uh, I have a number of friends, as you know. You meet a lot of them. They come here to visit. Uh, but uh, a lot of young people like to come to Daniel and I with questions about relationships. And so since uh, this is kind of on that subject, I have a number of friends that I sent that quote to. I said, hey, what do you think? But one of them responded, I don't understand. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean? How can I live loved? What does it mean to live loved? Well, if we live loved, then we will experience, number one, what it's like to be fully loved by God. If we live loved, we will allow our family to love and accept us. And if we live loved, we will allow our friends and church members to love and accept us. However, if you feel the need to earn love, if you feel like you need to work for it, or maybe you feel like you're an unlovable person. Or maybe you are on guard. Or maybe worse yet, you're suspicious of anyone who loves you. What are they out to get? What are they, what do they want? If any of this is you, then you have not experienced love. You know, we often, like I said, we've all been abused, right? So we do something to protect ourselves from abuse. What do we do? We build walls. I'm going to build this wall all the way around myself so that nobody can get in and nobody can hurt me. Does it sound familiar? You ever done that before? I think we all have. But as long as I build this wall tight enough, and make sure there's no cracks and no windows. Nobody can ever hurt me, and I'll be safe. But the bigger the wall, the less we feel loved. The more isolated we feel, the more we feel like we don't belong, like we're not part of even our own family. Do we build walls to protect ourselves from God? Do we really let God love us? 
So do we really experience God's love? If the first step to loving God or loving anyone is experiencing God's love for yourself, how many of us qualify? How many of us can quote John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We all know it, don't we? How many of you believe that Jesus loves us? Yeah, it's all of us. But do you let him love you fully, unconditionally, completely, without holding anything back from him? Do you let him see the deepest, most inmost part of your heart? Or is there something that you're not ready to let him see? Or is there something you're protecting him from? Are we willing to let God love us? I mean, God loves us. He's going to love us all his life. But are we willing to let him in so that we can experience it? You know, all of my childhood, my teen years, and my early adulthood, this has been a struggle for me. Now, don't get me wrong. I grew up in a very loving family. (laughs) You know my family. And uh, I grew up from a very early age knowing that Jesus loves me. It was never a question. But you know, I also grew up in a family of perfectionists. <laughs> any, any of you who know anyone who's a perfectionist? Well, if you know my family, you know a bunch of them. <laughs> the only thing that's interesting is that I was not one of them. I am personality-wise not a perfectionist. Now, I have learned perfectionism from my mom who's drilled it into me. But naturally, I am not a perfectionist. You know, I'll do my best and whatever happens, happens and it's okay. But I'm the only one in my family like that. (laughs) So you can imagine growing up, you know, I I did my best. But, you know, I've got got these white-gloved perfectionists uh, graders who are going to go back and look at inspect all my work. It wasn't just my mom and dad, it was my brother too. So, <laughs> so my picture of God was that he's a perfectionist. Now, is he? Of course he is. He says, I am perfect, right? And he says, I want you to be perfect. But is he a perfectionist as a guarantee that only if you're a perfectionist, he can love you? No. But you know, and of course my parents didn't want me to think that either by any means, but naturally as a child, that's what I thought. And that was my picture of God. God is this perfectionist being who's waiting for me to make a mistake and he's going to point it out. And uh, so I would agonize over this. In fact, during my teenage years, I actually wrote long page letters to God. Sometimes there are four and five pages. Uh, just pleading with him to, to, you know, make me do better so that I could measure up so he could love me and accept me. I'm sure I'm not the only one. <laughs> but if I were to break this down, what was preventing me from experiencing God's love? I could put it down to three things. Number one, I am not good enough. For God to love me. Ever thought that before? Tell you, the devil loves to tell us this one. You are too great a sinner for Christ to save. There's nothing that you can do. You're not good enough for him to love you. The second one is, 
I'm insignificant. I mean, there's a huge world out there. Why would God choose me? I'm just this little dot on this little bitty planet that's less than a speck in the universe. Why would God even take time to love me? I'm insignificant. And thirdly, I haven't earned it yet. I've got to earn God's love. So let's look at these three things for a minute. What does the Bible have to say? The Bible has a lot to say about these things, doesn't it? But let's just look because of time. We're going to go quickly. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Romans 5, verse 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Do I have to be good enough for him to love me? No. Jesus says, I loved you while you were a sinner. Don't wait to get good before you accept my love. What else does he have to say? Let's look at Psalms chapter 8. Psalms chapter 8. And I found this one interesting because the psalmist actually agreed with me on this one. Psalm chapter 8. And we're going to look at uh, verses 3 through 5. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I? I'm insignificant. Well, at least David agreed with me there, right? But what does he say in the next verse? Verse 5 says, You have made him just a tiny bit lower than the angels. You have made him so high that he's just below the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Are we insignificant? Absolutely not. We may seem like it in the speck of the universe, but we are made in the image of God. We are made just a little lower than the angels. I mean, how much greater can you get without being all the way up at God himself? We're made in God's own image. We're not insignificant. And lastly, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at a few verses here, starting with verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And then go on to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So do we have to earn it? No, it's not of works. It's by grace. 
that we are saved. And it's by grace that he loves us. But you know what? Maybe, maybe this doesn't describe you at all. Maybe you've never dealt with these. But you know what? There's another side to this coin because the devil has two sides to everything, right? He's going to, if he can't throw you off one way, he'll throw you off the other. So he says, if I can't get you by making you feel like you're nothing, I'm going to make you feel like you're something. So he says, I want you to think that you're good enough for God's love. Not only that, you are a very significant person in this universe and you've earned every bit of it. Has the devil already told you that before? Well, I mean, what do you have to worry about? You're a good Christian. You go to church every week. You read the Bible. You're, you, I mean, you've totally earned God's love. Does it sound like anybody else in the Bible? Well, let's see what God has to say about this. Let's turn to uh, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 18. If you think you're good enough. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good, but who? God, right? Well, okay, so maybe we're not good enough. But we certainly are significant. I mean, after all, we should feel extra special, right? We're God's special people. We're, we're significant. Luke chapter 3. Somebody else in uh, the New Testament also felt pretty significant. Luke chapter 3, we find out who they were. If we look at verse 7, we find out what John the Baptist called them. <laughs> he called them a brood of vipers. <laughs> These were the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? They came to John the Baptist because they felt like they were significant and because they wanted to keep their significant influence with the people, therefore they were going to confess their sins to John and be baptized and be more significant after that. Well, John saw through this. And what does he tell them in verse 8? He says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not say to yourselves, I'm going to add two words. I'm significant because I have Abraham for my father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from even the stones. You know, we might say we're pretty significant because we're Seventh-day Adventists. Or I'm pretty significant because I'm a Christian. I read my Bible. But let me tell you, God can make Christians out of stones just as easily as he could make children of Abraham out of stones. If we refuse to do the work that God has asked us to do, he can find someone else. We're dispensable. Let's look at one more. Isaiah 64, verse 6. I'm sure you can quote this one from memory. Isaiah 64, verse 6. I earned it. How well can we earn it? What does the Bible say? But we are all like an unclean thing. 
And all of our righteousness, all of my earnings are like filthy rags. Well, okay, maybe I didn't earn it very well. <laughs> Let's go to one more passage. Luke chapter 15. You know, it's very interesting. This is uh, the story, the parable. Luke chapter 15 is the chapter of parables. There's three of them. But we're going to look at the last one. And uh, the parable starts in verse 11 of Luke 15. The parable of the prodigal son. You know, and we often talk about the prodigal son and all the terrible things he did and the father's love of forgiving him and letting him back. But we forget there were two sons. And it's very interesting. I want you to look at uh, the first son, of course, the one we all know about, the prodigal. In verse 17 through 19, it says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to become your son. Please make me like one of your hired servants. You know those first three statements I showed you. I'm not good enough. I'm insignificant, and I haven't earned it. Does that sound familiar here? Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying, I'm not even good enough to be your son. And I haven't earned it yet, so please make me as your hired servant. I'm worthless. I'm not significant. You see that there? But what did the father do? He went and he didn't even give a chance for his son to even finish his statement. He gave him the best robe. He ran down the road to meet him. He gave him an embrace. He put clean clothes on him and threw a major giant party in celebration to welcome his son back home, not as a servant. And he said, son, I want you to experience what my love is really like. What about the other son? Let's uh, skip over to uh, verse 28. Of course, the son has heard about all that's going on, and he's discovered that his brother's gone back home and his father's thrown a party. And he's upset. He says he was angry and he would not go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. And he answered his father and said, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at every time. And you have never made me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came back, who has devoured all your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fat calf for him. And the father answered and said, Son, you don't understand my love. All that I have is yours. You've always been with me. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and now is alive, was lost and found. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound like these three right here? What did he say? He said, I earned it, didn't I? <laughs> I mean, I have slaved for you for how many years? I didn't go off and steal all your wealth. I'm a good guy. I mean, listen, he went to the harlots. Didn't you see that? I'm good enough. And I'm significant because I'm the oldest son. 
Now, let me propose to you that both of these sons had never experienced their love of their father because they didn't let him. They both had equal opportunity to experience the father's love, but they wouldn't let him. They wouldn't experience it. And it was there waiting for them the whole time. So which brother are you? I'm sure you're one of them. You know, I can't say I've attained, but I'm very thankful for what God has done for me. He sent me the most amazing husband there ever was. And I've seen a bigger picture of God's love without the perfectionism than I've ever seen in my life. Not just because of Daniel, but God is helping me to see what his love is really like. And I know I've got a long ways to go. But it's been such an enjoyable experience. And you know, like I said, Marble is a grown cat who refuses to experience my love. She wants it. She knows she wants it. She'll sit there and purr. She'll ask to be petted for a little bit and then she'll bite you. But she never will experience that love. But you know what? That four feet away from me, she'll sit on a chair, watch me while I'm eating, four feet away from me. If I get further than four feet, she comes looking for me because I have to stay four feet from her. Like that, that, That's where I want you. And you know, I think we often do that with God. God, I want you in my life. I'm going to look for you if you're gone, but I want you four feet away. Just stay there. And I'll be here and I'll know you're with me. I can see you. I I know you love me. I know you'll take care of me. And I still got my space and I'm still protected just in case you might hurt me or maybe in case I'm not good enough for you to love me. I feel so sad for Marble because she lives in a loving family. Daniel and I both love cats. We would shower on her all the love we possibly could if she would just let us. But are we Christians in God's family who are never experiencing his love? Are we like marble, scared to trust fully in God and let him draw us close? Or Are we like the prodigal son? Trying to earn God's love. Or are we like the older brother? Smugly sure of salvation, but missing out entirely on the loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. My call to you today is to let Jesus love you. Let him in the rest of the way. Don't be afraid to throw that door wide open and say, God, I don't even care about the skeletons in the closet anymore. You can have it all. And I want to experience your love. Ephesians chapter 3 gives a beautiful description of the kind of love that God wants to have with us. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 
through 19. That Christ may dwell in your hearts, not four feet away, inside. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's you being rooted and grounded in his love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height of the love of Christ. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Is this what you want? Is this your heart's desire? To know the love of Christ how deep it is, how wide it is, how tall it is to experience it fully. Father, we really do want to experience your love. We're sorry for how we have blocked you from loving us, how we've prevented you from coming into our hearts and experiencing your love fully. Lord, we want you now. We lay everything before you. Open the door. Please come in. Change us so that we can experience your love both here on earth and throughout eternity in heaven with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.